You're listening to Unseen Theatrics with Clinton Kamak. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Working in the wings of a theatre with line of sight to the artists on stage during a cabaret, band or gala shows, managing many different mixes to help the artists get in the zone so they can put on the best show possible, today I'm having a chat with a monitor engineer. Being a professional sound engineer for over 25 years with trips interstate on many occasions for one-off large events. While working in the industry, he's been a lecturer in sound production for the last 20 years, working at two different training organisations over this time. Welcome Craig to Unseen Theatrics podcast for today. Hi Craig. Hey mate, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. And yourself? Yeah, very well, thanks, Clinton. That's good. That's good to hear. Tell me why you enjoy working working in theatre. The the biggest thing for me, I think, is um, just the the interaction that we get from the audience uh, in a theatre environment. Whenever there's a live performance, um, I like the complexity uh, that we have with some of the shows that we put on because some of the audio requirements can be quite, uh, you know, sort of high end. And, uh, yeah, just the fact that you can hear the excitement from the audience, you can see the excitement from the band uh, when they're performing. I suppose uh, reaction is, is immediate. When yes. if you work in sort of studio type stuff, sometimes it takes a little while to be able to get the, the fruits of your labour. You have to wait some some days, sometimes weeks, to be able to finish the project before it can be released, before you actually get to see whether it's liked or not. Yeah. And in a theatre, uh, the cool part is is that you you know you know instantly if the audience is reacting and the band are reacting. Uh, to the audience, then you know you're doing a terrific job. Yes, yes, and that's a, that's a good thing when you get those great reactions. As a monitor engineer, what are some of the roles and responsibilities of that job? There's really sort of one main role that we have and one responsibility, and that, that's really to put the, the artists into their comfort zone, into their little sort of safe bubble where they feel absolutely, um, I suppose, at ease. So they can put on a great performance, they can hear each other well, the reality is, is that if I'm doing my job properly, I become absolutely invisible to the artist. So they're focusing on really playing um, and they're not looking at me. So I was given some advice years and years ago when I started uh, doing this, this sort of work that um, you know, if the band are looking at me, then that usually means there's a problem yeah. and that they need something changed or they're not comfortable or something's not dialed into their liking. Um, if they ignore you completely, then you've done a terrific job because that means they're just lost in the moment. They're interacting with the audience they kind of forget that you're even there, which is a, a, a good thing, to be honest. Yes, yes, and that means you can you can enjoy the show and, and be in the moment as well, mixing and doing what you need to do. That is true, yeah. And there's been plenty of times where I've been completely, uh, you know, just in awe of the you know of the magic that's happening out on stage. It's um it's great fun. Yes, yeah, totally. What personal qualities do you think that make a good monitor engineer? Oh, the first one would be um, someone who can really work under pressure. Mm. We're dealing with you know, sometimes highly strung musicians. They're, they're obviously quite focused on putting on a good show, so you know they can sometimes be a little bit on edge, um, a bit highly strung. Yep. They can sometimes be a little bit uh, abrasive because, of course, they, they don't mean to be. They, they, yep. they can sometimes get a little bit sort of caught up in, you know, something's not quite right and I'm not comfortable. And I've had plenty of shows where I've had you know, musicians sort of bark at me uh, while they're on 
on stage and then come up at the end giving me a big hug saying that was just amazing and apologize for being a little bit abrupt but i can completely understand you know they they can be completely in their moment yeah and if something needs to be fixed they want it fixed so if you're a monitor engineer you do need to have that ability that you can not take things to heart that you've got a bit of puff skin um, that you can work under pressure. Sometimes uh, we don't get a lot of time to get things done, so you've got things thing pretty quickly. And uh, the other skill that's really important is to be um, just diplomatic. If you're the sort of person that gets a bit flighty and you know uh, arcs up when someone might be a little bit rude to you, then you probably you don't want to be a monitor engineer. <laughs> so if you've got a tough skin and you're up for a challenge, yeah, you're the perfect personality to be a monitor engineer. Yeah, okay. You you do plenty of gigs and I'm sure you carry a gig bag with some tools that you like to have with you no matter no matter where you are or what you're doing. Yep. Can you give us your top three? Yeah, sure. First thing for me is obviously um, uh, a good set of headphones. Yep. Really important as a monitor engineer or if you, you know, mixing in-ear monitors, then obviously you've got your own um, in-ears that, that you'll take with you. The other thing which is always in my gig bag with me um, all the time is a cable tester actually um so i've just got a um a very simple little um xlr to xlr type of cable tester uh, for my cable so um that way you know you can quickly fault find you know a a dodgy cable or if something's been patched and hasn't been labeled and uh, you're looking at a whole bunch of cables thinking oh my goodness which one's this then the cable tester is a lifesaver what brand is that yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. Yeah, so the one that I've got is a thing called a rat sniffer, actually, uh, made by a guy called Dave Rat, uh, who comes uh, from America. Dave Rat um, uh, was the front of house engineer for Red Hot Chili Peppers for, oh, for, for eons. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so he makes a whole stack of uh, different little audio products, and it's literally you know, the size of a, a, a whiteboard marker, and it literally unclicks, and you put a microphone cable in between the two ends, turn on the switch on one of the ends, and you get three little green lights at the other to indicate that all three cores of your cable are working correctly. So that's a bit of a lifesaver. And the, and the third thing that I always take around with me, gee whiz, if it's going to be my top three, the other thing I always have is actually a what's known as a balancing transformer isolator. Okay. Um, so if you're ever dealing with bands where they've got projection being driven from a laptop computer yep. and we've got to take the audio from that as well, it's a great way to sort of break up earth loops and nasty hums and buzzes. So that's always in my toolkit as well. So. Right. And who, who, who makes that little device? The one that I've got is um, a company called Palmer. So it's a German-made one. The transformer isolators are pretty cool. Pretty common you can sort of find them all over the place so it's been a, a really useful uh device to have because it, i don't use it on on many shows but it's always in my toolkit and you know that one occasion where someone says oh you know we've got a vision or a bit of projection that we're going to drive from the computer and there's a bit of narration that goes along with it these things can be uh, an absolute lifesaver because hums and buzzes and earth loops disappear with the press of a button yep totally i've uh, had more than my fair share of a noisy computer in my life yeah, indeed, yeah. Do you use any applications or software to help you do your job? Yeah, look, the, the probably the, the one bit of software that most sound engineers would have is a program called Smart, made by yep. uh, a company called Rational Acoustics. And Smart is, of course, um, you know, just a bit of software that enables us to, to measure the response of a loudspeaker. And I mean, yep. when I say response, I mean, obviously, the frequency response. Mm-hmm. So when you're mixing monitors, um, it could be useful to have that plugged into the console. So if you're 
get a little bit of a feedback squeak. You can have a look at the screen yep. just to reinforce if you, you know, what you guess is the frequency that might be causing your problem is actually the one. Yep. Um, so I have that one on my laptop computer. And the other one that I have, well, she's a number of them actually, is the editor programs for the digital consoles that we use these days. Okay. Because there are a number of digital desks that are available. And as a modern sound engineer, you have to know a whole bunch of them. So we have the ability to be actually, you know, program up in what we call a show file um, on a yep. piece of software that you can run on your laptop. So when you get to the, the show, you can plug a USB stick into the desk and um, and some of the work's already done because you've sort of done some setting up work at home on your laptop computer at the kitchen table. Mm, cool. Do you carry an iPad around as well or are you just are you fine with a with a laptop? Yeah, look, sometimes I'll take an iPad. Um, normally with the iPad, obviously you need to have a, a, a Wi-Fi router type device. Yeah, It's actually quite handy when uh, you've got a, a mixing console that will give you the ability to control it from an iPad. Mm-hmm. Where, where that becomes really handy is during sound check, you can actually walk out and stand next to the drummer and sort of say, well, you know, what is it you'd like to hear in, in your drum fill? And um, you can be sitting there on the iPad next to them, adjusting it right while they're there, and they can be telling you firsthand, yep, enough, now turn that down a bit, turn this up a bit, yep. rather than trying to make hand signals from across the stage from where we are normally positioned at the monitor console. Yep, iPads are, are quite handy, and I, yeah, I do have one. I don't take it out on every show, but, yeah, I occasionally will take it out if I'm using the Yamaha consoles or the Allen and Heath series consoles. I'll, I'll sometimes take that out and, and use that. Mm-hmm. And, again, it comes down to you know how big the band is and how many sounds of monitors are asking us to mix. Yep. If it's only a small show, then generally it's, it's probably going to take you longer to set up your iPad than what it would be just to walk out on stage, ask the question and walk back and make the adjustment. So it's one of those things. It's, it doesn't take up much room to have that in the kit bag. So it's normally sitting there if I, if I need it. Yeah, okay. Oh, cool. You just mentioned about your position. Norm- you guys are normally set up on a stage right or OP in a wing somewhere? Look, yeah, it does It does vary, actually. It depends on the venue. When when I'm working um, in an Adelaide Festival Centre, then a lot of the times the monitor position is is um, yeah, on opposite prompt on OP. Yep. So obviously from the audience's perspective, that's that's looking over to the left side. But yep. we've done shows where um, yeah, monitors have been on prompt side. Here in Adelaide at Sebadon Theatre, uh, the the monitor desk is typically um, placed on the prompt side of stage and that's because the dressing room access is on that side and when the artists come up they want to be able to walk past the monitor engineer and you know ask for any changes or adjustments you know as they're walking on and off the stage so it does vary yeah. it really depends on the venue as to whether you're going to be one side of stage or the other okay we'll move into talking about an actual show in pre-production do you have much contact with the client at all normally as a monitor engineer Unless you're working with the band, if you're uh, an engineer that tours with the band, then clearly, yeah, you do. In my situation, typically the contact with the client usually happens at a a production coordinator level Mm -hmm. um, or the head of audio level or the touring engineer. The touring engineer will have all the information. So by the time I get to the venue, I literally just get given a a stage plot diagram, an input list, and then obviously who's on in-ear monitors or who's using normal floor wedges, drum fills side feel yeah and then sometimes um some notes as to you know the sorts of things that you can expect that the the musicians will want to hear other times sometimes you just rock up and it's like okay the band will be here in two hours time and um and we'll deal with it when they walk in type of thing but that, that sort of stuff is a little bit rare and normally it's a lot a lot more planned and and prepared so by the time i get there i usually have some sort of uh, paperwork with which to work from 
Yeah, so that that was exactly my next question. What paperwork? I know you mentioned a few things just then. What what's the typical paperwork that you get given so you're you're well prepared for when the band actually do arrive? Sure. Normally a stage plot diagram, which simply just shows yeah. you the the stage layout. Um, obviously where all the instruments are positioned on stage, where the fallback wedges need to be positioned on stage, yep. and whether um, a couple of musicians are sharing a send of fallback or whether they have individual sends, yep. whether the musicians are running any monitors. And then the other bit of information we get given is uh, a channel list. So the touring engineer uh, will normally specify which microphone they want on the kick drum, which microphone they want on the double bass, you know, if, if they have a preference. Yeah. And we do our very best to try and, um, yeah, try and give them exactly what they need. Yeah, and, and accommodate. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Next week, we talk to a dresser. A show is a fast-moving train that doesn't stop. If something's busted, it's busted. Really easy for them to get things on and done up. I think you kind of mentioned this in an earlier question about having a broad knowledge of a, of a w- wide range of desks. Oh, yeah. That being helpful. And w- which ones do you like to work with? Just to sort of explain first up, I mean, yep. in the, the, the what we call the professional kind of league of productions, yep. the two consoles that are really the top of the pile um, are by the manufacturer Digico and the other manufacturer, which is um, Avid. Yep. Digico have a series of consoles called the SD series, the whole bunch of numbers. They do an 11, they do an mm. 8. They do a seven, they do a five. The seven is the sort of the flagship. Yep. So the SD Digicos are very, very, very popular um, on the high-end shows, yep. as is the new Avid S6L consoles are incredibly popular. Some years ago, and I suppose even maybe uh, in the next tier down, Yamaha consoles are incredibly popular, especially here in Adelaide. Mm. Yamaha CL series. The big flagship Yamaha desk was a thing called a PM5D. That was a digital uh, Yamaha console, uh, which I have spent literally hundreds and hundreds of hours on. I have a massive fondness for that desk. Yeah. So they're sort of the, the big main ones. The console which everyone would know would be the brand Midas. Midas were pretty much the kings of the castle back in the days of analog mixing consoles. Yeah. And they've never really been been able to regain their sort of market sort of domination in the digital um, era as what they had in the analog era. So yep. they do exist, and they've just released a brand-new Midas um, Heritage digital console. And apparently from what I've, I've read and, and what I've seen, I've only seen it in the flesh one time, very good console. Yep. Pardon the Digicos and the, the Avid would be the two top of the pile. Yamaha would probably come in um, a very close third at, at local level. Yep. You have Allen and Heath. They make a really good digital console, I think called a D-Live, yes. uh, which I use quite regularly, and that's that's a brilliant desk as well. Yep. So you have to have a really good knowledge of all those consoles. Yep. So a lot of the country arts, theatres around um, South Australia have Roland consoles. Soundcraft up at Tanunda at the Brenton Langhorne Theatre, they have a Soundcraft. Okay. So there's a whole bunch. And unfortunately, um, with digital desks, no two are the same. Unlike the days when we used to use analog consoles, I used to always um, sort of relate analog consoles a bit to like driving a car. If you learn to drive in a Toyota, then you can quite happily jump into a Nissan and drive it or jump into a a Hyundai and drive it. Mm. You know, any other car you could, you know, pretty much drive it. Unfortunately, with digital mixing consoles, that's not the case because the way, say, for example, a Digico is laid out and the menu structure of the software, that is nothing remotely, even slightly the same as, say, the Avid console or 
the Yamaha console. Yep. Apart from they've all got faders and they've got knobs somewhere, that's about the only similarity. The rest of it is different. So okay. you do need to, yeah, you need to know a lot of a lot of the consoles. But the beauty is that we've got YouTube. So we can jump on YouTube and watch lots of tutorial videos and download the manuals. They're always free, the PDF documents. Yeah. And if you know of someone that's actually got one, give them a call and offer to go and sweep the warehouse floor for the afternoon. If uh, in return you can take the lid off the console and maybe get a couple of hours playing. Yeah. And what about the offline stuff, the computer versions? Do they relate relatively closely to the way that the desk actually works? Yeah, some of them are really good. Some of them not quite so good. So, for example, the software for the Digico SD series consoles, the offline editor, is absolutely identical to the software and the screen that you see on the actual console itself, as is the Avid Avid one as well. So, if you on the older Avid consoles, the Profile, the SC forty eight, or the newer one, the the SXL. The standalone editor software is 99% identical yep. to the actual software on the console. There are there are a couple of things that the console gives you that the standalone editor can't, yep. pretty much identical. So that makes it really useful yeah. to be able to learn the console. You can actually, if you wanted to, if you knew that you were going to go mix a, I don't know, a band playing, say, at the Governor Highmarsh, as an example, yep. they run a, an Avid profile in there. So you could go and download the editor, watch some tutorial videos, and sit home and pretty much get yourself you're around that console before you've even laid hands on it. Yep. Certainly to the point where you could probably get through the show with a bit of help from the in-house tech. Yep. Um, so those standalone editors are really good, but some of them, though, uh, Clinton, unfortunately, the, the software doesn't look anything like the actual desk. Yeah. Yeah, that can be a little bit of a challenge for sure. And one one that pops to mind straight away there would be you know the good old Yamaha PM5D. The old editor for that mm. is very different to what you actually see when you're looking at the screen on the console okay that's that's good to know what's your favorite desk to work on then oh geez i'm i'm torn well out of the modern desks yeah the ones that are the top top range um certainly the avid sxl uh, i've used that a number of times now and i completely love that thing yeah I, I like the digicos as well i'm a bit of a fan of the digicos yeah it's interesting that you talk to engineers that use one or the other and they tend to like one and then hate the other or vice versa i've, I've spoken to Many a touring engineer that are Digico people and they will absolutely not touch an Avid for love or money and vice versa. Yeah. So that would be my, my two probably favourites. Yeah. And then, you know, if we were going back, if I was going to rewind the clock, say, you know, 10 years ago, then the Yamaha PM5D, I just feel completely at home at the of the thing. But the newer consoles are, are much better. You know, they're a newer breed, uh, more powerful. They sound much, much better. So obviously things do change. Mm, yes feeling right at home behind the console that's a that's a good thing indeed yeah cool all right so we'll move on into bumping what's your first day of bumping and what what does that kind of look like for you sure basically just you rock up to the venue and we're obviously there you know usually well ahead of time depending on the size of the show yeah so uh, an early bump in for us could be as early as you know eight o'clock in the morning yeah you know if it's a fairly straightforward show you might not get there till after lunch if it's yep. a small band and it's only a small setup yeah yeah essentially the stage is usually completely bare by the time we get there we'll be sort of off on the side of the stage essentially setting up mics on stands just getting some stuff sort of dialed in as far as preparing leads cables all that sort of stuff Mm. so that when the stage becomes clear we can then go and hit the stage and pretty much get all the wedges and fallback speakers out on stage and all the mics out and be ready for a you know a line check usually in a a pretty short period of time so it doesn't take very long but yeah again it, it depends on the size of the show some of the really big shows where i've done like the adelaide symphony at the entertainment center 
with things like the Lord of the Rings where, you know, we'll be in at 8 o'clock in the morning and we'll have all the senior crew on that show and, you know, we can be ready for a rehearsal at, say, 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. But it's yeah. a pretty, pretty busy morning, I can tell you, though, when we do that. So. Yes. <laughs> In all that prepping stuff, are you looking after radio mics as well and dialing in uh, frequencies for that and in-ears if if needed? Yep. If we are running a really large show, we'll have a dedicated radio mic tech um, and their job will be to take care of the frequency scan and, and to sync all the transmitters with the receivers so um, everything's sort of like freaked up and, and ready to go. We'd also on a really big show have someone who just takes care of the patch so their job is to make sure that the right microphone cable gets plugged into the right input socket. Yes. Yep. In those sorts of situations, my job literally is to get behind the console, load up my show file if I don't have one or, or create a show file on the day and then get out on stage and help the, the guys position mics um, when the time comes. On the smaller shows, though, it's a one-man show. So I take care of all of the radio mics, take care of all of the in-ears, so I do all the scanning, all the frequency setting, do all the patch. So, yeah, a bit, a bit, of, a bit of a mixed bag depending on what the calibre of the show is. Yep. Yep, totally. How do you set up your monitor area? Basically, console, of course, um, uh, front and centre. I'll typically yep. have the desk pretty much downstage so I can see across the whole front area of the stage and hopefully have it set up so that I've got eye contact with every member of the band. Yep. In a big theatre show, that can sometimes be a little bit um, bit of a challenge because um, obviously there, there are legs uh, on the, mm. the side of the stage that can sometimes obscure your, your line of sight. Yep. In the perfect world, I'll have perfect line of sight to just about everyone in the band and hopefully be out of sight from the audience, you know, back far enough off the wing to be the uh, person that's in the shadows. Yep. Console front and centre, you have a, a your own sort of speaker on the floor, a thing called a listen wedge. Yep. You know, if you're having to deal with radio mics yourself, then all the radio mic receivers close by so I can sort of make sure that you know, RF levels aren't dropping out and battery indicators aren't going down to one bar and things like that. So that would be pretty much how we, we sort of sort of set up our little area. A nice comfy chair is really important as well because the, the days can be really long. As I said, you know, we might have an early sort of bump in at, say, 8 a.m. And, you know, it could be a, you know, a 7.30, 8 p.m. show. Um, and, of course, we bump out at the end. So, you know, as you're well aware, a uh, mm-hmm. 12 to sort of 16-hour day is not uncommon. No. Being on your feet for that entire time is taxing. So a nice comfy chair is really important. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's about it really. Okay. All right, cool. So any settings? I, I know you've you've mentioned about that all the, the digital consoles have, have different setups and not, not configured the same, but do you have any settings within the, the desk that you generally always do? Nothing really. I mean, I'll, I'll have – the only thing I'll probably go and prepared with would be just a, a base setting for the particular brand of console that I'm actually working on. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I'm on a, a Digico desk, well, then I'll like to prepare a show file that's just got the basic channel layout, a couple of effects, things like reverbs and stuff like that ready to go because um, artists sometimes like to hear a little bit of um, reverb in their in-ear monitors if they're on ears. Same thing with uh, the Avid consoles and uh, the Yamaha desks. I'll, I'll usually try and go with some sort of you know just rough template of, of what I need. Um, and it just saves time. It just saves you having to sit there at the console and you know, typing in kick drum, snare drum, hi-hat. You know, if you can go in there with that sort of stuff prepared, yeah, then that's usually pretty good. But I, I don't have anything special. There's nothing really particularly um, uh, special about the way I set up the console. I think the biggest key for anyone who wants to get into this line of work, especially on the digital desks, try not to overcomplicate things. Just try and keep things nice and simple, 
nice and straightforward um, because you are going to be under a bit of pressure as far as time is concerned. When a musician looks at you and says, oh, look, I, I need a bit of reverb in my in-ears, yep. they're not happy to wait five, six minutes while you're you know, going through menus trying to work out how do I get this reverb to work. Yep. They want it to happen pretty snappy. You know, Within a, a few seconds, what they ask for, they expect to hear. So I think that the big key for me when I set up my desks is yeah, just to try and keep things simple actually and everything within one or two button presses and then you're usually pretty good to go all right so can you give us a bit of an example of keeping it simple like the signal chain and flow from stage input through your desk and and back out again yeah yeah sure so basically obviously the the mics come into you know a a stage box out on stage somewhere that usually comes through uh, then into a a device called a mic splitter Mm -hmm. and a mic splitter is essentially just a big fancy y cord where we can split the microphone into the front of house mixing console then into the monitor desk and if we're recording we can split it off into a recording console if we need to yep and from that it then comes into my uh, monitor console and then it simply works its way down the channel strip so we set the amount of incoming signal which is a, a setting called the gain control yeah it then goes into a, an equalizer so we can adjust the tonality of the incoming signal to, to suit what we, we're trying to achieve we then send the signal out of the desk um, out to the various fallback sends out on stage and on its way out of the desk um, in the digital consoles um, we then have another equaliser that gives us the ability to equalise the speakers that are out on stage. And that can you know, enable us to do things like you know, eliminate feedback um, issues, just change the tonality of the speaker. Like if it's a drum fill, mm. you might want to create you know, a bit of bottom end so the drummer can feel the kick drum when he hits the kick drum. Yep. But that's not the same sort of settings that you would dial up for your singer who's downstage at the front. Yep. Um, they probably wouldn't have anywhere near that amount of uh, low end in their, their speakers. So that's pretty much the standard sort of signal flow. And sometimes you know, a bit of compression in there as well. So we can keep a lid on things that tend to get a little bit loud. Okay. So obviously a compressor is just a, a device that controls how loud the loud bits get in the mix. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and that's about it really. Again, it's pretty straightforward. And like I said, maybe just a couple of reverb units ready to go just in case someone wants to have a little bit of um, you know, a bit of ambience. We try and keep the reverb, especially with speakers on stage, we try and keep that to an absolute minimum because it can affect the front of house mix and what the audience will hear if they're hearing all this lush reverb coming through the monitors. It can sort of sound a bit like the Taj Mahal when you're sitting out the front. Yes, okay, yeah, understand that. That keeps things really simple. You mentioned about tuning a wedge yep. in that you'd have different things for the, the lead singer and the drummer. What's your process in tuning wedges for, for the artists? Great question. Uh, for me, primarily, it's just a matter of grabbing the, the vocal microphone and just walking out onto stage and doing the classic sound engineering chart, the check one, two, hey, 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 yeah, 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 check one, two. And as you're listening to your voice coming through uh, the, the fallback speaker back at you, um, this is where the iPad comes in really handy. Because yep. if you've got a desk that gives you the ability to control from an iPad, um, I can stand there with the equalizer the graphic equaliser page open on my iPad and I can be uh, EQing the fallback wedge standing there in, in situ. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what you find yourself doing is having to think, okay, you have to listen to your voice. You have to think, okay, that frequency is too, or the, the frequency I want to adjust is about maybe 200 hertz. Yep. Walk back to your console, go to the graphic EQ, adjust it, walk back out, do another check, one, two. So you constantly find yourself walking backwards and forwards. Um, occasionally, if I can organise to have someone as a bit of a lackey, a bit of a helper with me, I'll get them at the console and I'll get them to drive the graphic equaliser. I'll stand out at the microphone and I'll just call out frequencies to them. Okay. So I'll be talking. I'll say, okay, pull out a bit of 500 
you know, notch out a bit of 2.5 kilohertz. So that can be just nice and quick to do it that way. Yeah. So that's pretty much my, my process um, for tuning monitors. And I do that right the way around the stage, including the drum fill as well. Yeah. Then uh, once we start to do sound check, I can then essentially just EQ the incoming signal on the, the, the mixing console to give the musician what they need. Okay. Yeah, cool. You mentioned smart earlier as a good tool for for doing that kind of stuff. Do you use that in that process as well? Yeah, look, smart is pretty handy from the point of view that if you get a feedback squeal, it'll show you a spike on the screen. The only trick with that is, is that when you're a monitor engineer, there's a little button on the mixing console called a pre-fade listen switch or an after-fade listen switch for the fallback sends. Mm. So for smart to actually hear the feedback squeal, you have to have the send, the person's fallback send on stage, active in your listen wedge on the side of stage at the time. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to miss it. And and you can, if you want to, run a microphone into Smart yep. and then hope that it'll actually pick up a little feedback school. But sometimes that doesn't work only because if the feedback, if it's coming from the guitar player's fallback speaker, which is far side of stage from where you're standing, you might just faintly hear a bit of a feedback squeal. The guitar player might be glaring at you, so you realise, oh, my goodness, there's a problem. Yeah. But if you've got a microphone plugged into your smart rig that's right over by your monitor desk, that squeal may not be loud enough to register any change on the screen. Mm. What I find with smart is it's a great analytical tool. I certainly wouldn't rely on it for sure. You've got to use your ears. You've got to learn your frequencies. You've got to be able to identify that when you hear a squeak or a squeal, you need to know, well, what actual frequency is that? Um, and that's something that everyone can do. It's just a matter of doing a bit of practice. It's a bit of ear training. Yeah. What I did years and years and years ago is I created basically a, a, a CD with a whole bunch of sine wave tones on it yep. that were all the um, frequencies that we have on a graphic equalizer. Okay. So I used to remember driving around in my car, giving myself a bit of a, a, a listening test. Yeah. And what I did when I created the CD is um, I put the tone on the disc and then I had my voice saying what the frequency was yeah so the trick was is i used to put it on random play in the car back in the days we used to have cd players in cars these days everyone uses ipods of course you can do the same thing on itunes yeah yeah and you hear the the tone and then the trick is you've got to guess the frequency before you hear yourself announce 1k or 500 hertz Mm. Um, and i still use it actually funnily enough i've been doing this job for 25 years now yeah and i still occasionally will put it on and try and give myself a bit of a bit of a brush up well that's that's good yeah just keep the skills up yep yep keep the ear well tuned i hope you're enjoying today's episode and if you are spread the word let everyone know about unseen theatrics sharing education of live theater do you carry a, a basic show file for for all desks or is it just one or two Normally, the shows that I get to work on, when I'm doing monitors, it's really only four consoles that, that yep. are common um, in the high end. As I said earlier, the the Digico um, SD yep. series. So I've got a show file, basic show file that I've got set up for that. Yep. Certainly the Avid SXL, the older Avids, the profiles, yep. uh, they have one as well. And the Yamahas. So, you know, like the CL series Yamahas and, and the PMs. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's actually five consoles I just counted in on my hand. So a lot of the times, uh, you know, if there's enough time at the show, uh, I'll just create the show file on the fly. I'll rock up and I don't have anything prepared. So in these situations, I normally get uh, a heads up ahead of time yep. as to how much time we're going to have before the band's likely to arrive. If I know that I'm going to be under the pump, yep. then I will um, create a show file ahead of time. 
Yeah. If uh, I know I've got you know the, the whole morning before we see a band, then I might just you know, create one on the fly on the day. Yeah, cool. And in your show file, you mentioned earlier that you'll you'll label you'll label the channels. Yep. And possibly put in a few reverbs or, or effects. Is there anything yep. else that you'll you'll add to that show file before you get to the venue? No, not really. Uh, uh, things like just to make sure I've got graphic equalizers across all my outputs or parametric equalizers across my outputs, just so I can EQ the the fold send and that's about it really the rest of it i, I tend to just deal with it. there are no preset eqs or anything like that mm. they're always starting off as, as flat yep. because you know the the eq will change from from day to day from instrument to instrument from player to player yeah so you know it's very unlikely that you you'll see me using exactly the same kick drum eq every time i i you know, have to deal with a drum kit mm. it'll be slightly different each time depending on you know the day essentially yeah on the kit and on the mic and in its position exactly yeah exactly so you might be using a different you know brand and model of mic it could be positioned completely different drums are always tuned differently um they are obviously devices that uh we react to temperature changes you know with the the drum heads will change uh, as the temperature changes so too many variables just to rock up with a, a show file the, the one exception to that rule i should point out though um would be if you were touring with a band and you use the same band each each time that you're playing and you tour your own microphones with the, the setup so you're using exactly the same kick drum mic each night yeah and certainly if they're touring their, their back line which is the instruments mm. then that case there yeah, you could you would rock up with your show file plug it in and use the show from the night before and it will be 95% in the ballpark. Okay. And that's pretty much how the big touring acts work these days. That's why they can sort of rock up at festivals and within a very short period of time have it dialed in perfectly because there is that consistency. I don't get the luxury a lot of the times to sort of work with artists that do that. So I, I do a lot of one-nighters where I'll meet the artist at 2 o'clock that afternoon mm-hmm. and by 10 o'clock or 10.30 that night, they're walking off a stage and I'll never see them again uh, for the rest of my life. Yeah. In that situation, you're just sort of you know doing it on the fly. But, you know, if you're out, are touring with a band and you're their engineer and you've got that consistency absolutely you could have preset eqs preset settings and you'd be pretty close to being where you want it to be every show yeah yeah cool on those big touring shows and that a lot of the engineers use external plugins waves and those types of of things do you use many of those at all not a lot um that again with engineers is there seems to be the two camps there there are the people that love to use plugins and they're the ones that tend to not i suppose Mm. when it comes to the live mixing i tend to sort of shy away from them a little bit and not for any particular reason some people like them they like the way they sound other engineers can get what they need from the console without having to dive into the plug-in world yeah. that really comes down to just personal preference there's there's no real right or wrong yeah and there's no one way is better than the other i've heard engineers who have done great mixes and you look at their show file and they've got plugins for days and then two nights later i'll work with a different touring engineer and you have a look at their show file and i'll have virtually no plugins maybe apart from one or two reverbs and a couple of delays so, you know, it's, it's I think, horses for courses, really. Um, everyone's got their own preference. Mm, okay. You've covered this a little bit. How do you communicate with with the artist or performer on stage to, to make sure that they're getting the right mix that they want to be in that zone? During soundcheck, it's pretty easy. You just literally walk up and stand next to them and ask them, <laughs> you know, yeah. is it okay? Is it what you want to hear? Do you want, do you want to make any changes? Uh, during the show, then you just got to keep eye contact. It's just really important that, you know, during the performance that you're not getting sidetracked and, and not looking around the band. You can't get so engrossed into the show that you're just looking at the, the lead singer the whole time. Yeah. Or even worse, not that I've ever done this, but, you know, you would 
wouldn't want to you know get out the phone and be you know surfing social media and or watching youtube videos because of course that's very <laughs> unprofessional yes so the, the trick is you just watch the band and just keep an eye just keep glancing around it, it you can normally tell with a show because um if you get a decent sound check and everyone feels comfortable and they're settled in and once the show starts and the audience yells and screams and the band's playing you might need to make a couple of changes usually in the first couple of songs because there might you know be a little bit of a adrenaline they're playing a bit harder and their levels might change a little bit so you might need to compensate mm-hmm. but most of the time once things are dialed in after the first song or two uh, you're sitting there just watching the show and then what I do is I just keep making sure I just spend you know, a couple of seconds looking at each musician again being positioned on the stage where you've got a clean sort of uh, line of sight to all the musicians so that if someone is to be waving their hand, you'll, you'll see it. Yep. And then I literally, as a monitor engineer, as most of us do, is we then just progressively just work our way through each individual musician's mix. So I've got a button on the desk where I can press and I can hear in my speaker exactly what they're hearing out on stage. Mm-hmm. And I'll just spend the whole show literally just toggling between all of those mixes to make sure that everything's stable, there's no squeaky feedback starting to appear, yep. uh, no nasty drones that I didn't notice earlier. Yeah. So just make sure you constantly keep checking it. Most of the time it's a, a pretty straightforward process really. All right. During an actual show, if they do want to make make a change, what kind of signalling or communication happens between you to get the correct change? Sometimes it can be really subtle, like a really, really subtle sort of hand gesture. Sometimes it's very um, obvious where the singer will yell out, Mr. Monitor person, can I please have more bass guitar in my send, please? You know, they'll actually yell that out. The audience hears it, everyone hears it. And that's perfectly fine. But sometimes it might just be a hand gesture. I had a a guitar player once um, as he was sort of like, you know, grooving around the stage playing his guitar. He uh, made eye contact with me uh, and with the, you know, the neck of his guitar, he literally turned around and pointed at his bass player and then pointed down at his wedge and then tilted his guitar up as he was looking at me which was very clear to me saying bass guitar my wedge crank it up yeah you know and he did that all as he was moving his guitar without using his hands as a hand gesture yeah so no one in the audience would have realized they would have think he was just enjoying playing his song but i could clearly see that he was signaling to me i need a fallback change yeah so sometimes it can be you know nice and clever like that yeah and occasionally not very often occasionally you might get someone who's a bit abrupt and a bit rude yeah and and that's happened before to me um in the past yeah not very often but it does happen yeah okay cool what's your involvement in TechRun? are you making any notes yeah, normally in Tech Run, yes, if I need to again. Things like, um, say, for example, Adelaide Cabaret Festival when we're doing the gala. Mm-hmm. We have stage managers, of course, so they're taking, yep. you know, obviously a copious amount of notes for what's happening. Yep. In a show of that calibre, we have a dedicated microphone, radio mic person. Yep. We have a dedicated patch person. We have dedicated stage hands who are out there moving things on and off stage as required. Yep. So my job in that is pretty straightforward. I'm just sitting at the mixing console. I'll occasionally make notes if there's something that needs to be changed at a particular part of a song. Yep. The modern digital consoles these days give us the ability to save a thing called a scene or a snapshot, uh, depending on which brand they like to use the two bits of terminology. Yep. So I'll sometimes get the old pen and paper out and make a note. Yep. Sometimes I'll just save a setting and I'll just know at this point I have to recall that setting on the console. Yep. But yeah, that's that's pretty much how it works in Tech Run. And then we just run the whole show and try and iron out any of the, the technical bugs. Yeah, so in those in those snapshots or, or scenes, are you recording everything in the desk? 
recording everything. So I'm recording every single channel, every fader position, every EQ, absolutely everything. The cool thing about the modern digital um, consoles is that when you create a, a snapshot or a scene is it will remember everything. But what happens is that when you go to recall that scene, you can be selective with what it recalls, and we call that a scope. The beauty is that you don't have to tell the desk, hey, remember every single setting of every single channel because it will automatically do that for you. If, for example, you know the show's running and in the third song um, you know, the guitar player signals to me that they want to change, when I go to recall my next scene or my next snapshot, what would happen is that that change I just made for him would actually reset back to what it would have been prior to me making the change. Yep. So what I can do is I can then go uh, into the next scene that I'm about to recall and just say, oh, that volume uh, of that guitar, don't recall that because what I've got set currently now, I want that to stay the way it is for the rest of the show. Okay. This is where, again, as a monitor engineer or even just a sound engineer mixing front of house, you need to know those consoles. You need to know the, the Digico, the Avid. You know, they are the two main ones that most of us tend to use at the high end. Mm-hmm. You need to know the desk really well. You need to know the scene or the snapshot um, system really well. Yep. Get a chance to get on the desk and play and practice. The place you don't want to be practicing for the first time is during the gig if you've never done it before because the stakes are so high of what could go wrong mm. and you could completely train wreck a show by um, not knowing you know, to how to use that function on the console properly and completely ruining a performance. Yeah. So, yeah, typically I use those systems. All right. Moving into dress runs and that, are you just monitoring the desk while they're doing their shows, just flicking through the different sends like like you've mentioned before? Yep. Essentially, a dress run is is the show. Yeah. You're running the show, but you don't have an audience there. Yeah. So I would be doing absolutely everything that uh, I would do during the show run. So you're just keeping a, a, your eye on the whole band. You're listening to each of the fallback sends making sure that everything's sitting comfortably and, and not causing any feedback issues or, or tonal changes or anything like that. A dress run is the show minus an audience. So mm. all the things you're going to do is what you do. Yeah, totally. Move into a show day. I know sometimes there's those one-off gigs that you do bump in, show, bump out, mm-hmm. but there's obviously some da- some some shows where you're in there for multiple days doing the same show. Yeah. When do you arrive on, you know, those next days at the venue and what checks do you do when you get there? Yeah, great, great question. So the first thing we do, obviously, power everything up. Yeah. We would normally um, obviously do a radio mic check, you know, just maybe do another scan to make sure that all the frequencies that we've selected are still um, usable. Yeah. And then we literally do a line check. So we go and tap every single microphone on stage to make sure it's still in the right position, the mic stand hasn't drooped or the mic fallen, and that the mic is still plugged into where it was when we walked out the night before. Yep. So it's just literally just completely checking everything. Normally what would happen if the band's available, they'll do a quick little sort of sound check and maybe a little mini rehearsal mm-hmm. that might only go for 15, 20 minutes. They might only play one or two songs. It's really just for them to feel comfortable and, and settle in yeah depending on how the, the night before went if they had some issues they might want to sort of do a, essentially like a, a small rehearsal that might go for a half an hour an hour mm-hmm. sometimes they might play two or three songs and go up oh, sounds great excellent and they'll just say yep we're, we're ready to go yeah and walk off the stage so that's pretty much what would happen on those those shows where we do you know, multiple runs in the same venue 
Yeah, cool. And we all know that problems are going to occur at some point. We obviously try and avoid them as much as possible and put redundancies in place where we can. How do you deal with an issue if it's in the middle of a show? Yeah, good question. Number one rule, stay calm, which is really easy to say uh, now that I'm sitting in my nice, calm, warm kitchen. Yeah. But obviously when you're in the hot seat at the show, uh, it can be a little bit challenging to try and sort of keep a calm head. But that, that really is number one rule. Try and stay calm and just work your way through the problem. Find, you know, obviously you'll have a good understanding as to what the problem is. If you've got a feedback squeal or if something stopped working, a microphone stopped working or, you know, a mic stand has fallen over on stage or whatever it might be. Sometimes some of the problems are really small. Mm. Sometimes they can be really, really large. Um, one show I was doing monitors on, the front of house console froze and we had to get the stage manager to come out on stage, inform the artist, and we had to have a pause in the show while the front of house desk... Um, was rebooted in situations like that you know you just have to stay calm and just do roll with it and just deal with it and, and keep a smile on your face and try not to get flustered really um, there's nothing really else that you, you can do in those situations and and i've been very fortunate i've never had a situation where we've had a complete show stopper where the show hasn't been able to um, continue on okay so there's always you know just been like a little glitch and, and most of the times these little problems you can deal with pretty quickly and the audience are oblivious that was even a, an issue all right that's uh that's some good words of advice uh not to uh, get flustered and keep calm and just work through your processes to yeah to fix the problem yep indeed indeed and like i said it, it's it's a lot harder to do i've been in situations when i began uh doing this line of work where um you get so wound up you know you think you you're actually going to be ill mm. Because you're so stressed, um, and and you learn, I think, with uh, you know, just having done the shows for for so many years, you just learn to, to just deal with it and think, well, okay, there's no point getting wound up because it's not going to make it better. Yeah, I might as well stay calm and just try and sort the problem as quickly as I can. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you're doing um, like a cabaret season, normally there's there's more than one act mm-hmm. on in a night, so there's a turnaround between the artists and that. So I know it depends on the size of the show and how many crew you've got on. Yep. What's your role in that turnaround time? Yeah, sure. I just help. Just, yep. just jump in and help. So it's kind of all hands on deck. Adelaide Cabaret Festival is a good example where, you know, yeah, we might have a venue where there are more than one show on a, a day. And there's usually at least an hour minimum, you know, sort of turnaround time between one show coming down and the next show going up. Um, sometimes a little bit more. Yep. So, yeah, you just strike the stage. Um, obviously, everything on stage is spiked. Yeah, you know, a bit of tape on the stage to indicate where everything was: mic stands, mm. props, speakers, the whole lot. Yeah, we just strike the stage, do a reset, do a quick line check. If the band wants to come out and do a quick one or two songs, so that's pretty much the process. It's, it's again pretty pretty well well rehearsed. Actually, we actually do make sure that the changeovers are are going to be um, yeah pretty pretty smooth. Nice. If you have any questions, contact me via the Unseen Theatrics Facebook page or at unseentheatrics at gmail.com. Obviously, in that line check, you're checking that you're getting the channel on the right right channel strip on your desk, and same with front of house. Absolutely. We never, ever let the audience in until everything is checked, and both engineers are completely comfortable that um, we've got everything that we need to. Yeah. 
some of the shows where I've done front of house, the big shows that I work on, you know, where uh, I've yelled out to the front of house crew, the, the ushers, that um, you cannot let the audience in because we haven't finished checking the lines and there's no way we're going to start a show unless every single microphone is plugged into the right spot. Yeah. In a show day, if there's multiple shows over multiple days, post-show duties, what do you need to pack up, shut down for, for the day? Yeah, that, that's an easy one. If, if it's um, the same show and you know, obviously we're going to be on a, a bit of a run. Yep. All you do literally is grab the radio mics if you're using radio mics, yep. pull the batteries and wind down the amps, power down, cover over the consoles and walk away. Yep. You know, usually the, the, the sort of the power down process at the end of the day is pretty quick. Most of the time, you know, if it's been a fairly long day, we just want to get out of there and we always come back early enough in the next day to do a, a pre-show check yep. to make sure that everything's all fresh, ready to go. The, the pack up at the end of a show is pretty quick, actually. The curtain come down, can come down and uh, and I can literally be walking away from my console within 15, 20 minutes. Short, sharp and simple. That's why we like it. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, yeah. Next is bump out. You're just in with the rest of the people, packing up, yep. packing up monitors, packing up cables, yep. that kind of thing. It's a classic thing. Yeah, you know, usually with bump outs, um, you know, as as you're probably well aware, you know, we have a term for people who just walk in and mix and walk away. We call them the, the white glovers. Normally, when I'm doing the monitor role, though, uh, yeah, I'm I'm there for the bump out as well. So, yep. uh, depending again on the, the size of the show, that can be anything from you know maybe an hour to three, four hours after the audience has left that we're still rolling up cables and rolling boxes into the back of a truck and you know or waiting for the truck yeah obviously the bump out can take a few hours and and that look to be honest with you, that can be a bit of a, a challenge too when you've done a, a massive long 12 hour day and then you're looking at all this equipment you think oh my goodness i've got another four hours of bump out to go and that's part of the, the fun of the show and a bit of the banter as well you get with all the crew and you know pat each other on the back at the end of it so it's great fun yeah yeah cool all right so now that you've bumped out and got everything out of the theater do you have much going on post-production? Very little. Normally for, for myself, you might get the head of audio that might just come up and say, how'd it go? If there was any real major problems that you faced, then um, that's your opportunity to sort of let them know that, hey, look, you know, if this show comes through again, uh, we need to allocate, you know, another two hours for setup or, mm-hmm. you know, if something was a little bit sort of short-changed. So really, that's about all they're after. They're just after a little bit of feedback. If, if there's anything that went horribly wrong, and what can we do better for next time? Yeah. And that's about it, really, for the post-production side of it. For what I do, um, outside of that, then yeah, you just wait for the phone to ring and, and hopefully get asked to come back and do the show from again next time. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, no, that's cool. A few more general questions, just just to wrap up. If you could change one thing about the theatre industry, what what would it be? Ah, uh, excellent question, and I have an excellent answer for you. With hand on heart, I would say the one thing that I would change is the rate of pay. Theatre technicians get paid quite a, a pittance for the amount of hours they do, for their skill level. I, I really do think that the, the rate of pay uh, in theatre is, is incredibly low. You can earn quite a, a decent wage these days, even as a junior in some work environments. And some people that I know who have got 25 years experience and some of the best technicians in theatre in Australia uh, are not that much highly paid compared to, say, a, a young junior. Yes, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, it's um, it's just like being a, a venue tech. You've you've got to know a little bit of 
a little bit of rigging, you've got to know a little bit of sound, you've got to know a little bit of lighting, and there's three full-time professions all by themselves. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I couldn't agree with you more, Clinton. I just think, um, you know, given the fact that um, we seem to not put much um, emphasis on the importance of the arts, Mm. uh, and uh, but, yeah, as I say, especially given the fact that a lot of people have had to sort of be at home and, what do most people do when um, there's not much to do? We uh, we watch YouTube, we watch TV, we listen to music, we read books. Mm. All those things require arts people, <laughs> every single one of them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it would be nice if there was a little bit more emphasis put on it, uh, the importance of it. But, um, yeah, obviously I'm, I have a vested interest in saying that, so I'm a bit biased with my, my comment there. You and me both. I've seen you on plenty of stages doing doing monitors and that, and you manage huge amounts of mixes. So, yeah. what what's your highest count that you've had to look after when when being a monitor engineer? Oh crikey! Well, put it this way: um, the Yamaha PM Five D console, the old sort of flagship yep. um, digital board from from some years ago, that only has twenty four output buses, and I've completely filled that to, to maximum. Yep. Um, so I think, look, the most amount of mixes I probably would have done would be somewhere between 24 to 30 individual mixes on stage um, at one time. All of those people need me to be watching them yes. all the time yep. to make sure that, you know, anything might need to change at any given moment. So it can be really, really busy and very challenging, but very rewarding. You know, if, if you're the person at the end of the show, they come up and thank, you know, it's really nice when all of a sudden they find out that you can't be there and you get the word back that, oh, my goodness, how are we possibly going to do the show without without you at the monitor board? So you become a very trusted member uh, of almost the band in a sense. So that can be that can be a really nice feeling to, to have that degree of, of trust from people in you to do that. Probably 25 to 30 mixes at one time would be the, the maximum I've ever taken care of. Good. I'm glad it's you and not me. How do you look after your ears? Because I'm sure at some points it can get quite loud on stage with amps and that. Yeah. What sort of uh, ear protection care sure. do you do to look after your hearing? Yeah, I have proper moulded earplugs, uh, 25 dB attenuation earplugs. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to not wear them uh, unless I absolutely have to. The shows that I do these days, um, I'm very lucky that it's not outrageous volume on stage anymore. Yep. Back in the, the, the big day out, the sound wave days, yeah, it used to get quite loud. Occasionally, I'll, I'll do monitors I'm, you know, due to the positioning of the stage. I might be right behind an open back guitar cabinet. Yep. And so what I usually do in those situations, if I find myself where I'm just getting absolutely pummeled by the noise coming off the stage, is I'll normally, without anyone seeing, I'll pop my earplugs in yep. and then I'll put my headphones over the top. So they're thinking that I'm just listening on headphones and that's just a way for me to escape. And then I just basically watch the band to make sure that if anyone needs anything, I'm ready to, to make the adjustment. But I would only ever do that, I've got to admit, if... The whole fallback system was stable. There was no squealy, feedbacky things going on. If everything was nice and comfortable, then I'd probably feel safe to be able to pop my earplugs in, put my headphones over the top, mm. and that way just sort of escape the noise a little bit. Look, to be honest with you, Clinton, I think I can remember probably in the last 15 years, maybe twice, where I've had to do that. Okay. All the other times, the stage hasn't been that loud. Musicians these days are very, very well versed in the whole stage dynamic mm-hmm. and trying to play at a, at a at a volume that excites them to play, but not at a volume where it becomes completely, you know, silly. Even the big rock and roll shows, you'd be 
quite surprised that it's not as loud on stage as what you might think it would be. Okay, that's good that everyone's looking after their uh, their ears. Yeah, and look, you, you always get musicians. I, I remember, I won't mention the name of this individual, but uh, a very well-known Australian performer doing monitors for uh, this person, and they kept on saying, can you turn it up? I need it louder. I need it louder. And in the end, because you know, the fallback was just ridiculously loud, and in the end I had to walk up and go, are you wearing earplugs? And they turned around to me and said, yeah, absolutely. I never perform without earplugs. And I said, well, how about you take the earplugs out and we turn everything down because <laughs> you know, it just got out of control. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that was a, that was an interesting one. That's normally how I protect uh, myself. Cool. Last question, the one that I always look forward to. I know you've mentioned heaps throughout this chat. Any tips or tricks to pass on? Yeah, younger guys and girls coming into monitor world, yeah. absolutely. I've got some great bits of advice for you. Yeah. The first few things to sort of suggest to someone who wants to get into this line of work is um, all of the the same things that you would expect to have for any other job. So you need to be um, obviously uh, a polite, courteous person. Yeah. Uh, you need to be reliable. If you're going to say you're going to be somewhere, you need to be there always on time, every time. Yeah. Um, so all of those normal things that would apply to any other line of work, you need to apply to being a, a sound engineer as well. The things that are specific to being a sound engineer and someone who wants to do monitors, uh, you also need to have a fairly tough sort of hide uh, you don't want to be um, easily offended or if someone were to mm. perhaps um, bark at you at a show, uh, don't take it to heart. So you need to have a little bit of a, a tough skin and be able to roll with the punches a little bit. You also need to be able to work under pressure because a lot of the times we don't get given a huge amount of time to do what we need to do. So you need to be able to work fast. And the other thing I would suggest to people is um, just learn as many of the, the modern digital mixing consoles as you can. And you can do that without actually owning a console, believe it or not you can watch lots of youtube videos there are just about um, every manufacturer has tutorial series on how to drive their specific consoles uh, you can download the pdf manuals for all of the consoles they're free and the other thing is that the standalone editing software that um, you can then sort of load up a, a program a show file from home they're free as well so you can get those so i would recommend anyone who wants to get into this line of work to do that and uh, learn the desks and then uh, I think the last thing would be simply if you know anyone who owns a console or if you've got any opportunity to do work experience with a good sound engineer who knows what they're doing that's invaluable because that's what I did when I started off uh, over 25 years ago when I first moved to Adelaide, um, I found out who was the best sound engineer in town at the time and I was lucky enough due to my audio training that I was here to do um, I got to meet this guy and I asked if I could do some work experience and uh, lucky enough he said yes. Uh, I was obviously good enough out on the work experience not to annoy him to the point where he was ho uh, open for me to come out and, and have another shot which then led to me going out and having another shot and ultimately we ended up becoming quite good friends and I was able to learn so much by just hanging around watching someone who knew what they were doing. So put all those things together and they would be the bits of advice I would give anyone that wants to get into this line of work. And I suppose the only other thing I would say uh, as well, always take every opportunity that comes along and be honest with your ability. Don't sort of sell yourself that you can do something if you don't think you can. That's also very important because, you know, bands put a lot of effort into putting together a product and, and that can be easily undone by someone who is not quite up to it at the mixing console. And no one expects anyone to be to begin with. This is one of those areas of work that it takes years to get good at. 
and it takes years to develop a, a reputation as well. Yep. So if you can kind of put all those things together, yep. they would be the bits of advice I would give anyone that wants to sort of get into this industry and have fun along the way because it is good fun. There's no doubt about it. The reason I'm sure, Clinton, why you continue to do what you do and I continue to do what I do is as much as sometimes we get a bit grumpy with our industry, mm. when deep down we miss it. And I know I certainly do, having been, you know, not been able to do a show since the COVID thing started. I've been climbing the walls waiting to get out to do a show. Yeah, awesome. Great answer. Uh, any any final words? That's it. Well, thanks for having me on today, mate. I've had a ball, mate. So hopefully uh, if there's anything I've been able to say, if it's uh, helped anyone along the lines, um, yeah, great, great stuff. Awesome, Craig. Uh, thanks for uh, coming on Unseen Theatrics podcast today. No worries. Thanks, Clinton. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Join me again next week as I chat with a dresser. 